The uh, law in action, I called it that, it was a very difficult actually, uh, kind of a, I like having titles, it helps give me a focus and maybe help you a little bit. This is a little more difficult because chapters 24 and 25 is a smorgasbord of all kinds of topics. So, uh, but it, it shows what God had put in place and the action that the people needed to take regardless of how difficult what God was asking them to do and to, to follow through with uh, the good and the bad. So uh, it, it took action. You just don't get a commandment from God and then do nothing. <laughs> if God says stop, you don't, it's not debatable. You, you have to stop. If not, there's consequences like smashing into a car. I mean, it's, just, it's not a good thing. Again, people can get hurt, they can die, and we will see that tonight when they don't follow God's commandments, the law, you can die uh, because God didn't mess around when it came time to making sure his people um, did and followed through as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as God commanded. In Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, you're going to see the care and the important care of the tabernacle lamps. It's one of the elements here. Again, with the continuation of this Leviticus here, we pick back up where then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they will bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony and in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron, Aaron, the priest, right, shall be, high priest, shall be charged of it, uh, of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. And it shall be a statue forever in your uh, generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So one of the requirements was is they couldn't just use any old oil laying around. It had to be pure oil. It had to be very well refined and, and, and pressed with the best of grapes and they, um, the best of, of the olives. And they had to bring those pressed olives uh, for the lighting of the lamp, in the menorah, the, the lamp that was the only thing that lit the entire tabernacle up. So that was never to let go down. It wasn't to, you know, I, you know, I don't have time. You know, I've gotten busy over here at home and I haven't had any time to, to you know, for, for time for myself, as Aaron might say. <laughs> Aaron, don't let that light go out, man. Don't have any excuse because the wick, you didn't have the wick cutter or that they didn't bring the pure oil on time and it wasn't my bald and it's just no big deal we no big deal we'll just keep moving on no that's not the attitude at all in the ministry there Aaron had to make sure that that lamp never went out never that's amazing responsibility as the priests overlooking the tabernacle. So the lamps in the tabernacle standing in this, in this, this solid gold lampstand were the only source of the light and they had to make sure that they used pure oil and they had to trim the wicks. And so from evening until morning before the Lord continually. So Jesus is, again, our picture, the foreshadow of that light in the tabernacle. Now we see Jesus in our scripture of the New Testament never stop being the light of the world. We see that in John chapter 8, verse 12. He is our continuous light, never ends. He never took a break from being who he was and is and what he stands for in light in this dark world. And as well, we are never to take breaks from being the light of the world. So you and I as believers, as children of God, we too are never to take a break of being the light of the world. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. So don't be sitting there saying, oh Lord, I want to be your light. I want to go out and be a light. And so, oh, this is going to be great. And you walk out and oh, that applies here, but I'm going to work. So let me put my light under the basket. That should not happen. You're supposed to be a light at work. They should know you're a Christian and they should know that who you stand for and who you serve at your homes and everywhere else you go, even when you go out and hang with your buddies and your friends and neighborhoods from your classmates and wherever it may be, you should be the light of the world wherever you go. It should not change depending on the circumstances. But we can only do this as we are continually supplied with oil. And who's the oil represent? That's a picture of what? Or who? The Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the only one that can empower us and keep our light burning because it's, he's, the, he's the oil. He's the power to allow the light to shine through us and have our wicks trimmed. How was our wicks, our wicks trimmed? It's by undergoing the trimming or the training through trials. How does God keep our light shining so bright? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, we're going to be trimmed. We're going to be uh, trained through our trials to make sure that we do not uh, become dimmed lights. Now, ver uh, verses 5 through 9 of Leviticus, Leviticus 24, we see the care of the tabernacle bread. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Why 12 cakes? The 12 tribes of Israel. Two tenths of an ephah, that was a lot of, 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 of material. And it was these are big breads that they made for each of them. And they were stacked up in two rows and in, in, in six in a row on this pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on it. Not rosemary, not any of the, It's frankincense they put on this bread so that they were going to eat it. And it may be on the bread for a memorial and where's the frankincense when it comes to what? The burial of Jesus or the bread of life, the frankincense taking with Jesus. We can see these things throughout the scripture here. An offering made by fire to the Lord every Sabbath they were to do this. And he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It was always to be placed there in that tabernacle, never to be nothing there. And uh, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire uh, by a perpetual uh, statue. So this bread of the tabernacle speaks of the fellowship and the communion of God. It was always to be in the tabernacle. It was always to represent each tribe was to fellowship, commune with God. It's a symbolic breaking bread with God. That's why it was in that place and speaks of the continual fellowship God wants with Israel uh, of all the tribes. Now this bread is also referred to, and we're very familiar with, as the showbread. Um, that's the, you'll see that in the scriptures as well, especially in Exodus chapter 25, verse 30. You'll see the reference of the showbread. That's what they're referencing here. Now it literally means, showbread literally means the bread of the face. And, and it's a sense, it's, it's, it's being eaten uh, in the presence or before the face of God when you're breaking of bread. And they shall eat it in the holy place. So Aaron and his sons, because of the position they're in as, as priests, they were to partake of that. That's how they provided for them. But that was significant because God wanted that fellowship fresh. And so they would partake and eat of that bread. More bread would be made and each Sabbath was replaced and this always continuously uh, fresh in the, in the tabernacle. It was never a stale fellowship. It was never stale bread. It was never, ah, we don't need it. No big deal. It's, we don't need to spend time with God. We've done it last week. We, we can wait a couple weeks. We'll go again and do that thing with the bread in front of God. No, it was a continuously fresh fellowship weekly that the people got together, or in this case, Aaron and them, and they knew that bread was placed. And everyone in Israel knew it was part of the, the show bread that represented that fellowship, the communion with God uh, for, the, uh, for Israel. Now, verses 10 through 12 of 24, we see now a completely radical shift in the topic to this, uh, this case uh, or this crime uh, uh, by an Egyptian blasphemer. And it says, now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. So there's the woman, Israelite, having a child with an Egyptian father went out among the children of Israel and this Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So the son was fighting with another guy in the camp and the Israelite's sons, a woman's sons blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed and so they brought him to Moses. Um, and we see that his mother's name was Shalomith, the, the daughter of Debrai, uh, De, De of the uh, tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody, 
that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now, I want the mind of God. I want to know what God thinks about this situation. And they're going to bring this, this boy and everybody involved here into a place where they could understand what he did was absolutely wrong. And this is the mind of God when it comes to you cursing out and blaspheming God's name. <laughs> There's a consequence for this. And we want you to understand the name. So this, this, this son this, the, of this woman who uh, was half Egyptian and half Hebrew was part of the mixed exodus of the people from Egypt that we see in Exodus chapter 12 verse 38. And that's what happens. Sometimes you say, oh, the Exodus and all these Hebrews, 2.3 million Hebrews went out. But there was other Egyptians who were there as well who actually believed. Or someone, in this case, this woman says, I'm an Israelite. I know this is going to happen. You're my husband. and this guy, You are going to be with me in this house when we put the blood on. And you're going to be saved and we're out of here. So there was a mixed multitude went out in that, that great migration out of, uh, or immigration out of uh, Egypt. But this woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and curse, and he committed the crime of blasphemy, which is to attack someone, especially God, with your words. You can literally, we probably would call that verbal abuse today. And it was directed usually at God that caused the blasphemy. But you could do the same thing to someone directly. It seems that it was common for Egyptians to curse many gods. Because they had many gods. So obviously this, this husband, this Egyptian father, influenced the son in what his beliefs were. That it was no big deal to curse God. Blaspheme him. No big deal. We do it all the time with all these other gods in any situation. It's just the way we talk. It's just who we are, you know. It's our culture. You can rationalize all you want, but in these days, there was no excuse. So what happened? What was in verses 13 through 16? What was the penalty for this Egyptian blasphemer? Well, we see that then they let all who heard him, literally, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take outside the camp him who was cursed. And then let, let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Why stoning? Because there's stones everywhere in Israel. Have you ever been to Israel? It was easy to pick up a stone right then and there. He didn't say, well, let's arrange for, arrange for the, the injection. No, that wasn't going to happen. Let's arrange for the electrical chair. That's not going to happen. It was pick up the stone. And you notice those who knew who that blasphemer and was a witness of this, they had to go and put their hands on the person and claim, I was a witness, I know with no question, and we're willing to to lay our hands and commit to this and everyone else in the community because it affected the community. It wasn't affecting just the group or just a few people. The blaspheming God represented the impact that could have on a community of society if it's left unchecked. And that's exactly what took place. They laid their hands on him. They picked up. They stoned. They stoned him without a question, and was put to death. And so whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. God made that very clear at the very end in verse 16. Now it's interesting when you think about this, to keep themselves from blaspheming the name of the Lord, the Jews, like many people today, I don't want to do anything against God, but I think I can come and figure out a way around this that maybe God won't think this, I'm doing this as a sin. Maybe he can, it's justifiable why I can do this. Well, there's no different than what these people did back then, right? So even Israel today and the Orthodox Jews, they, they, to get around their traditions and, 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 and extreme links to avoid saying or writing the name of God. So if they say anything that sounds like a blasphemy against God, they don't want to get stoned. So the king come. We'll solve that. You just never say God's name. You just, you just don't do it. 
So the high priest was the only one who was allowed to know and pronounce the holy name of God, which they said Yahweh. Again, it only happens only once a year. And if the high priest is coming off his, 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 his role and the new one's coming in as his last breath, he quietly said to the new holy uh, high priest what the true name of God was. And they're the only ones that would know. But it was interesting. And that only took place on the Day of Atonement once a year. That proper announcement of the name of God was said or passed on. We call it the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. They took the vowels out so that no one would know the name of God, so they would not mistakenly pronounce that name. So they called him Jehovah sometimes, or Yahweh today. That's, how, that's what the name they reference. They're just changing the name. We don't know what God's real name is. Now the Jews also did not write the name of God. What they would do is they would say Adonai, which is the lower case of the L-O-R-D, right? Or more common was they would say G-D, and they would leave out uh, the, the vowel. So again, they didn't want to make a mistake because they even thought if they wrote this down and somehow that paper got destroyed or fire or anything, that would be a form of blaspheming God and they didn't want that responsibility. So they want nowhere on that piece of paper do they want the name of God in any form or fashion so they put, put themselves at risk. Now in chapter 24, verses 17, 17 through 22, we see the provisions for the law and order. Because there is provisions and, and, and there has to be law and order. So whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. That's clear. Is that, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man c- c- uh, causes disfigurement, of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man. So it shall be done to him, and whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger or for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Again, this was not a this was not as debatable. Let's let's wait for the next let's look wait for the next election and the courts change and then we'll change the no. God sets the standard, God sets the, the, the boundaries, and God says there's going to be provision of exactly what you need to do to keep the law in order in these areas. Now, in the context of giving the penalty to this Egyptian blasphemer, God stated a very fundamental principle that they needed, the people need to do. He is, he is justice, He is just in what He does. And crimes must be punished. But in proportion, in proportion, or um, yeah, proportion to the appropriateness to the crime. So it's like you didn't kill everyone because you killed the goat. Got killed. <laughs> you had to replace the goat because it was a livelihood. But it was a. That's God who said this is just and this is appropriate because this is what you did. This is the results back, and He sets the thing. Especially when it comes to fracture to fracture, eye to eye, or tooth for tooth. Many people have taken eye for eye or tooth for tooth as a command. Instead, God intended it as a limit. That's a limit. So no man or judge would be able to make up their own punishment as they went. Why? Because human nature, God knows... That if someone plucked out or did something to you, your human nature wants to hurt your attacker worse than what you received. That's human nature. Someone got in a fight with you and hit you. The result is that attacker may not just want to hit you back. He may want to devastate you and break something. He may even want to kill you. That, that's, that's the human nature. 
That's why you have to be very, very careful. Because that is what God said. But so God had to put limits so that you could not make a decision. I think this person deserved that instead. Or the judge, that's a stranger. Let's do a worse punishment for the stranger versus the, someone who's a Jew. He says, no, it's an equal across. It's a human being across the board. God here puts a limit on the vengeful tendency of man. Now, Jesus rightly commanded or commended the taking this command regarding the law and order in the community and applying it to personal relationships. He says, where love and forgiveness and going the extra mile is what we're expected. We're to go and beyond this. You don't go eye for eye and tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture. We don't do that. We're looking to love on these people. We're looking to forgive these people. We're looking to go the extra mile. Not equal retribution against someone who came against you. It's to be a rule. We see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Now in verse 23, it says, Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him and, and, and with stones. And so the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Because God expected them to be obedient to what God told them to do. That's why they did it. They were obedient. They obey even if it was difficult. They follow through with the difficult commands of how God said to handle the situation. Do what God has said. It is right. He is just. He knows what he's sovereign. He knows what is best for not only for human beings, but as a community as a whole. Now we get into chapter 25. We see in verse 1 and 2, we're going to get into the special Sabbaths and the year of Jubilee. And here it says in verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses on the Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So we see that the laws here are given in faith. Why? Because God said they were to do this when they get to the promised land. They're still in the wilderness. They haven't made it into the promised land yet. So they are just still in the wilderness. They're not yet in the promised land. And here, as far as Moses and the people knew, they were only a matter of months from entering into the promised land. And so this was all by faith that this was all going to be. be and so God was telling him, you're going to go into this. if you." That didn't help them. It wasn't until the second generation that they actually went into the promised land. Even Moses didn't make it because he took his eyes off God and, put him in, and let his flesh be bare out and stopped him from going into the promised land. But the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So we're familiar with the idea of the Sabbath week, right? Work six and on the Sabbath, the seventh day you, you rest, right? But here we're talking about years. It's describing a Sabbath of years for the land. Where the land receives a rest for one year out of seven. Wow, that would take a tremendous amount of faith, wouldn't it? It's like putting it in context for us. You're going to work six years at a job, and a seventh year you can't work. It would take faith, would it not? Some of you are saying, that sounds like a really great idea. But you're not getting paid. You get nothing. You have to live off of what God has provided for you the previous six years. That's what God is called to do. But they didn't have a bank account and save up the money now. Keep in mind. It, this is food that we're talking about. Yes, probably money as well, but mostly food because they could not work the land that seventh year. They had to live off what God provided extra through the six years, and they needed to be wise with the resources that God gave them. Oh, how important that is. That's why you don't, if you get an increase, you just didn't go, oh, honey, we've got to get a bigger tent. I mean, 
<laughs> this is, can we find a tent over closer to the mountain view? You know, we, we, we'll take some space here. But honey, we don't know what's going to be like in the remaining few years. How do we know we're going to have enough for the seventh Sabbath year? Oh, honey, you know, Lord's a great. We'll take that risk. They didn't think that way. They, they lived contently. They made sure they had the provisions necessary for that year because they were going to take it off because God commanded so. Obviously, this, this, this land that they keep a Sabbath of the Lord, this called Israel to a great deep faith in what God has, has said it would happen. And they trusted God. He would provide enough for those six years to see them through the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting, in the Feast of Tabernacles, if you remember that conversation on the Sabbath year, the law was to be, to be read to all the people by the priests. All the people were to come and have this one big extensive Bible seminar once, that, once a year, and the priests read the entire Deuteronomy chapter 31. Uh, verses 9 through 13 speaks of this, and they read the, 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 the Word of God to people. It was one big seminar to remind them of all the Word of God. And what, what, was, what amazing moment that God uh, brought the people and the people came. The whole nation would come and listen. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if the, our entire nation would listen to a, the Word of God being spoken? Wouldn't that be incredible? It would. Verses 3 through 7, uh, how to give the land its Sabbath. There is a proper way to deal with this. It says, six years you shall sow your field, and the six years you shall prune your vineyards and, and gather its fruit. And, but in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. There was solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. This is to the Lord. This wasn't, this is when, you know, it's like giving a tithe, gift, or an offering. You don't give it to the church. You're actually giving it to the Lord. <laughs> That's what you're doing. So by them taking that year off, they're not giving it to themselves or to someone. It was, it was truly for the Lord. They're doing it by faith and trusting him. He's going to use this and provide for them. It was a form of trust. It still is today when you give your tithes, gifts, or offerings. It's a step of faith to give away something to the use for the, for the Lord's use. And so we see here that they were to, uh, to apply this both not with just certain things. Oh, yeah, I'll apply that to my one, one field. No, it was all your fields, all your grains, all your fruit bearings, everything. All you had to do for six years, the seventh year, absolutely you could not do anything. But what do we do with the fruit that grows in the seventh year? What do we do with the plants just, just sprouting up everywhere we're out? We're going to get to that. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, it was also a powerful testimony of dependence on God. Because at the very end here, he says, when you're not working the land the seventh year, you're not, a, you're not out there what grows of its own accord of its harvest. You can't just go get even though you're not working it and it's your land, you just can't go out and start reaping and gathering the grapes and the fruits and stuff out of that land. Why? Because you're supposed to let it rest. And also make a note here that for you and your male and your female servants, your hired men, the stranger who dwells with you your, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your hand, all its produce shall be for food. So basically what this is saying is not only do you have to trust that God provided enough through the six years for your seventh year where you're not going to work, but anything that you have, the fruit and the vegetables and things that are, that are coming as a harvest, you could not just go get. You had to be like everyone across the entire nation to be equal, and you were to go out and collect food for yourselves and your livestock and everything like everybody else. Now, if you have to think that through. Here you are, you're pretty good out the gate. How much land do you have? I just purchased my other land because they were in deep debt and now they're my people who work for me and I have their land. Oh man, how much land do you have and how much fruit do you have? But now, now it's equalizing. 
you had to remember where you came from. You didn't go out in your, all your fields and just pluck. You could only go, everyone was able to go out and just pluck and get whatever's available to them through this land. It was a great equalizer. I love how God works this. It, wasn't, it was also just a plain good ecology, eco-friendly kind of thing here because giving the land a rest every seven years would help restore the vital nutrients back in the land that would normally be depleted every year and it was never stopped. Then you would, they wouldn't be as fruitful. It wouldn't be as good of the food. So God was trying to teach some things that they didn't didn't understand. But Israel's failure to keep this command determined the length. There's the consequence. You did not rest the land every on the seventh year. Every seven, every seven years, you didn't rest the rest of the land. And you think you got away with it. As a nation, you think, okay. Are you going to tell anybody? I don't, I don't tell anybody. Let's just keep working our land. And, and they would work deals. Uh, Gentile. Can I have you come up here and I'm going to have you sign something here and you're going to work the land, my land, for one year. But I will give you a portion of it. I will provide really well, but you're going to give me the rest of it. Then they can sit there and like everyone else do, God, I didn't work my land because I didn't own the land. I, that, that Gentile owned the land and, and it didn't apply to him. So he can, of course, work the land. But at the end of the year, what would happen? The ownership would then flip back to me from the Gentile. And I work another six, six years, right? And all of a sudden, on the seventh year, we got a deal again, don't we? <laughs> and here comes the Gentile working the land, and they think they justify it, and they're going to they're gonna get something you know, around God somehow. Like God's not going to understand what they're doing. Because he also looks at the heart, does he not? He looks at what you're thinking. He looks at your heart. He looks at what your actions are. Now, it's interesting. Israel failed to do this commandment. How do we know that? Because the length of their captivity in Babylonian captivity, Israel, we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, that there would be a captivity for you not allowing that to happen. So that would, God's going to take you, put you into captivity for the number of years that you did not allow your, your uh, land to rest over the years. We go back and look at Leviticus, well, we'll get to it, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 34. There was a consequence here. It's like someone telling me today, Pastor, no one has said any, he, God hasn't done anything to me, even though I'm living in sin and doing these things. I don't see any, God doesn't seem like he, it really matters to him. I don't think it really matters to him. It's so, so trivial and it, no, I'm not hurting anyone. Just because God did not correct you immediately, just because your heart is so hard you don't even feel the conviction by the Holy Spirit anymore, hey, doesn't mean is God's not going to take the last 10 years and collectively bring it together and bring you into captivity somehow. <laughs> don't, be very careful if you don't have a broken and contrite heart and you're willing to repent. God is, again, they thought they'd get away and sure enough, they were thrown into captivity under the Babylonian slavery there. Uh, what a price to pay for not following God's good and just and the law. I mean, they just wouldn't, didn't take the action. Today, many of the, again, like I said, many of the observance of Jews, they just figure out a way to get around this Sabbath year because, you know, I, I got to make money. I like, you know, I don't want to just let it sit there and take the step of faith. I don't want to live by faith. I'll just do whatever I want to do. Ah, be very careful when God says to take a faith and you don't do it. Be It'll be a weight, uh, a heavy hand on you for sure. Verses 8 through 12, we see the, the, uh, the year of Jubilee. 
And the year of Jubilee is observed every 50, the 50th year. So it says here, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourselves, seven times seven years, and the time of the seventh Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, make note, and you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the start of the 50th year here and proclaim what? Liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. We're free people. Let's celebrate this on the Jubilee every 50th year. And it, sh and it shall be a Jubilee for you. It should be a great celebration because each of you shall return to his possession and each of you shall return to his family. Wow. What an incredible thing that God does here. That the 50th year shall be a, a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows uh, of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of, of your unintended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. So again, there's this time where he says, not only are you going to celebrate on this 50th year, you can't even work the land and do anything on this, this uh, land, and you're going to have to go out like everybody else in this and. In, in, and gather the food in, through the land to provide for you as you go. I mean, that's incredible if you think that through. The step of faith in this and the celebration and promises. But notice the, the, the big thing here is that you were able on that 50th year, you shall be able to return to your possession. Because maybe you had a bad time, didn't go well, you had to sell your, your house and land over to another guy. You actually had to work for him to pay off the debt still. And if you could not get enough money to pay back and get your land back, because they never sold per se the land. It was always a lease issue. Because at the 50, if you can't get it back, then what would happen is at the 50th year, you automatically could go back into your house, go back to your land, and whoever had it because you were in debt, they had to leave. They, had, they couldn't do it. They had to just go back to what they only owned straight out, and everyone else was able to go back to their land. And it was a celebration. Because the year of Jubilee was somewhat like a Sabbath year in the sense that the crops were not planted, the land was given a rest, and, but they were restored their lives, especially if you're homeless because of debt and, and all kinds of issues. You were able to get restored on the 50th year back to your possessions. Many take this the prophecy of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, to speak of a jubilee year since Jesus read this passage in Nazareth synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, if you remember. Some have speculated that Jesus' ministry began in a year of jubilee, many believe. And that is, was mostly not, I mean, this, this is not most, not observed at all now, but even many back then. Because once you've got a good deal and got someone else's land and you're making a lot of money off of this land and got this land and you're a really good negotiator and other people, most people weren't willing to give up all that wealth and give it back to the people they got it from. So, but God sees all things. But they're supposed to consecrate this 50th year. Proclaim the liberty throughout all the land to our inhabitants. Doesn't that sound familiar to you here in the United States? We, we lived down in the New Jersey area. We would go to see the Liberty Bell all the time. And on that Liberty Bell, it hangs in there in the Independence Hall of, in Philadelphia, speaks of the, found, the founding fathers understanding God's uh, God's uh, law here and it's proclaimed liberty throughout all the land is written on that bill. In Leviticus chapter 25 verses 13 through 17 in the year of Jubilee, the land of course went back to its original family. But notice here 
is that each of you shall return to his position. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy your neighbor's land, you shall not oppress another. It's a, it's a form of law. You're not to oppress your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. If you were able to get it back before the next 50th year, you were to calculate how many days that that would be and you were to pay them back accordingly of the number of years that was used up during that, between that period of time and when the 50th year was supposed to hit. So you can see them literally according to the number of years of crops he shall sell to you according to the multitude of years you shall increase its prices because increase in prices each year they were supposed to accommodate for inflation i guess at that point in time and even according to the fewer number of years you shall diminish its price so it sells to you according to the number of years of the crops therefore you shall not oppress one another but you shall fear your god for i am the lord your god so when Israel came into the promised land, the land was allotted according to tribes and families. And these initial tracts of land that were laid out for the 12 tribes would be the permanent possession of the families that were in that tribe. God said, that is your land. You don't get to just freely just give it away. And you can't freely just take it away from someone. There is going to be a thing where you're not going to be able to say it's sold and it's final and there's no deal. No, you're going to rent it. Yes, you're going to be able to pay off debt by giving it over and letting the, this new owner benefit from all the crops and stuff. And you may have to work to do this. But at the year of Jubilee, we're going to reset that and allow the tribes to be in the lands that it was described. Every family would have an opportunity to start again. Oh, how exciting it must be at that 50th year if you had lost your land and you were knowing you were going to get it back. Now understand, it's just the land that was redistributed. We see maybe one other item, but it wasn't everything. But it, it's not some socialistic system that they had in place like some people think. It is a, again, you're not to oppress your, your, your fellow neighbor. You're to give back and let them have a, a fresh start. Doesn't mean they can't screw it all up and you'll end up owning it again during the next 50 years but they at least get a fresh start in verses 18 through 22 uh, we see here that God's provision for the Sabbath year I'm going to highlight a couple of things here so you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them and you will dwell in the land of safety so God's promised that Israel would obey him he would provide would provide for them, especially on, uh, uh, through this, the first six years for the seventh year to have without being working the land and then letting it rest. He also then I command my blessing on you in the sixth year. So if they obeyed God and did exactly what he said to do, even when it doesn't make sense, they still did it. He said, my blessing will be poured out onto your life for being that because you've trusted him. You trust me for every one of your needs. I am going to provide and add to your life. It brings us back to Matthew 6.33. For we, if we first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. So you, we must understand God is going to take care of us and will add to our lives if we just be obedient to what he's calling us to do. And verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So the land says, let me remind you something and this whole conversation about having to give your possessions back on, and, and you have to rest the land and stuff. It's my land. <laughs> I own this land. It's all mine. I'm giving it out to you for use because I love you. you. It's not your car. It's my car. That's not your job. I gave you that job. It's not your house. It's my house. This is my land. This is everything. Remember, I'm the, the master. I'm the Lord. You're the servant. Everything is mine. So it's like a, it's like a reminder. Hey, guys. Don't have a problem with this thing because it's my land in the first place. And if you don't, if you're not do what I've asked you, I will take the land away from you. I will, I will take you out of here. I will, you'll no longer have that. 
God is in control. It's a reminder of us. And we also understand that this land shall be not be sold permanently. Why? Because there was a thing in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25 here we'll get to, is something that's called a kingsman redeemer. This person is, who's a relative could come in and buy the land for his brother who lost it in some deal. Look at it. In verse 24, In all the land of your possessions you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brothers becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, to purchase it back, then he may redeem it what his brother sold. Or if the man has, not, has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he, does not, if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who brought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall be released and it shall be returned to the possession." So yes, a kingsman redeemer, if you could not make it out and you're just in a bad strait and there's just no way I can visionize getting back to my position, and 50 years is a long time, kingsman redeemer. Someone as a relative who's right there could actually purchase it and give it back for you. Now it's important we do that because it, this, this is also a wonderful picture of Jesus, of course, as our kingsman redeemer who purchased us from the slave market of sin, of course, Romans 3. Romans 3. Read Romans 3. Somewhere in the middle. 24, I think. Verse 24. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Reminds us of the fact that we have a kingsman redeemer. He came and he purchased and redeemed us. It reminds you of also Ruth uh, chapter 3, right? You remember the story of the book of Ruth describes this kingsman redeemer transaction between Naomi, who was returning back from Moab, back to her countryside, who was poor and dead and no husband and at all. That, but she knew there was a kingsman's redeemer, if you remember the story, and was willing to buy back in her land and get her back and to have a place to live. But once he figured out that he would have to not only Mary and you have to raise up like children for that because they didn't have a children because the, the husband there was nothing in the, the man's name for her so she wouldn't have one there he backed out of the deal which is what God planned on all along because there was a man named Boaz and Boaz became the kingsman redeemer that's the nexus closest kingsman redeemer and he stepped right in out of the love for Ruth to, uh, to, to do that now, in verses 29 through 34, there's an exception, of course. There's always seems to be exception when it comes to real estate. And there's an exception of urban real estate. If there was a house within a walled, a walled area, the, the rules changed. They, were not, they, were, they did not, um, the laws of property was, uh, was not applicable to, to these walled cityed houses. It only applied to a house that did not have a wall and had land because not only was it was their position where they, li they lived, but it was also their livelihood because they worked the land. Whereas if you're in the city, you don't have land to work. You have just an establishment. And so in these, uh, you know, these city areas, uh, the rules of engagement were different. And in the city's property was pretty much a place to live, right? And so the restrictions was you, you could buy and sell and it wasn't the same going back to the Jubilee year because you're looking for people to have the ability to, to work again their land. The, the houses were different. Um, in verses 35 through 38 was the lending to the poor. If one of your brother became poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or sojourner, and that he may live with you. Take no surrey or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money or usury, nor lend him your food for a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Again, it's a reminder. You have a brother or a sister and poor and can destitute, have no place to live, they're homeless. You're not to say, hey, great, come on into my house. 
Not a problem. I'm just going to charge you interest. I'm going to charge you a little extra fee because your living conditions are definitely better in my house than when you're on the streets. And you could try to make a deal and make profit off these things. <laughs> it happens today, you know that. People rent out, I'll rent out one of my rooms. I want to make some profit off someone who I know that doesn't have any money and I can get some profit, especially if they get some money from the government and I can guarantee a paycheck. Be very careful. If this is a brother and sister of the Lord and he's in need or she's in need and you, God has said to bring them in, he says, that's my house. That is what I gave you. You are to use it for the Lord. You're not to, be, to use this for profit and take advantage of people. You just take care of them. God, God says, I'll take care of you and make sure you're able to do it until they get their feet back on the ground. Verses 39 through 46, when a Hebrew becomes a slave because of debt, we see it very clear. Um, the fact that you shall not compel him to serve as a slave if a Hebrew becomes someone in debt to you. Because why the Mosaic law says... Um, that if one chronically could not pay his debts, he would have to work off that debt. He didn't just get off stock free, but he had to work as a servant to the debtor uh, or the, the creditor to him and must work that off. But these laws were put in place how you were to treat them in this situation. You didn't have the right to treat them like dogs. No, you were to have compassion treatment for any Jewish man who is unfortunate and struggling. You were to show compassion and you were to treat them almost like a family, but more like a servant within the family. And you shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Again, this would happen if they couldn't pay you back all the way and then they would be set free uh, from that debt uh, the year of Jubilee. Now, as for your male or female slaves, we see in these verses 39 through 46, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female servants. So foreign slaves at that time uh, among the Jews did not have the same rights as a Hebrew servant. They were treated differently there but because of the debt. But they could be held as slaves for life and they had to be treated humanely. We see that in Exodus chapter 20 and chapter 21. And then lastly here in verses 47 through 55, redeeming a Hebrew slave from a foreigner. A foreigner comes in, he's got possession and a, and a Hebrew man is now a slave or a servant of him. It, there's laws that God says uh, to this foreigner it says now if a sojourner or slave or close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family after he is sold he may be redeemed again so there is a way for the kingsman redeemer someone to come in and get him out of that position of slavery as a hebrew as uh, jew to this foreigner um, and it was a redemption of not only of the land that the kingsman redeemer could buy back but he could a kingsman redeemer could buy or bring that hebrew slave out of the servitude that they found themselves in and the price was reckoned in relation to the year of jubilee again how many years left before that 50 years. The children of Israel are servants to me. That's really what he is saying here through those last few verses here. It's that my, they are my servants, verse 55. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and I am the Lord your God. Meaning no one in my people are going to be a slave for the rest of their lives. He is going to set them free. And what a beautiful thing as you ponder on these verses, go back and go through. We went through two chapters quickly, but you really got the main key points from this as we continue to move through, as we finish up um, here, Leviticus, with two more chapters here uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think it'll be one, one per, per week, but what a blessing to see the character of God and how he worked with his people. And again, the translation of that into our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what we see in the scriptures regarding this.